Our first main topic is the subject of adultery, the sin of adultery, we should say, in the Bible. What is adultery in the Bible and what are the consequences of this sin? Well, we already know that marriage is between a man and a woman and that the two of them should stay together until death. This is the biblical understanding of it. We gathered that from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, and Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 12. We gather this from the scriptures. So a deviation from that would be anything else that undermines that concept, undermines that foundation, would be a deviation, a sinful deviation. Adultery is one of those major deviations. We learn of adultery from the Ten Commandments, where one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Let's see a couple of examples of adultery and then some explanations as to what adultery actually entails and the implications of it. Firstly, examples of adultery in the Bible. Genesis chapter 35, Genesis 35, 22. This is Reuben committing adultery against Israel or Jacob, his father, and also Jacob's wife. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, I said wife. In the Bible, a concubine is a wife. A concubine is a wife. It's another term for a kind of wife, but she is, Bilhah was, the wife of Israel. And Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, or Jacob, went and lay with Bilhah. And it says, Israel heard of it. Why is, does it say Israel heard of it? Because of what Israel will do later. Genesis 49, Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, Israel or Jacob is addressing his sons. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He went up to his father's bed and defiled it. So he lost his firstborn status, which would have been a double inheritance. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 also mentions this. First Chronicles 5, 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to birthright. And we learn also from Genesis 48 that Israel or Jacob gave Joseph, his one son, a double portion of inheritance in the land of Canaan, that is to Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, a double portion and gave to Reuben only one portion. This was his penalty from his father because of this crime of adultery that he committed. Then another example is the common example. We will not actually read it and, and, and read any of the passage or detail it. But in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we know of this common popular example of David. David was already a married man, but he took the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, 
and he lay with her, committing adultery with her, and then he committed a series of sins in this regard. Nathan the prophet came to confront him of it. He repented of it, and there were consequences. There were penalties for his committing of adultery with Bathsheba. That's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Then, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The apostle is making this real injunction or this real covenant between a husband and wife. He's explaining it and then explaining it in reference to the spiritual implications for us in reference to the law and to Christ and the gospel. So it becomes clear here in verses 1 to 3, especially the apostle is teaching that a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. After he dies, she is free to remarry, but not while he is alive. She cannot be joined to another man. Another example is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Among the many sins he lists, one of them in verse 9 is adultery, and he says that no one who practices adultery inherits the kingdom of God. That's impossible, because anyone who practices this sin or any sin goes to heaven. And yet he also reminds them that repentance is possible and needed, and when that happens, repentance and faith in Christ, then we become washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. This is what he calls everyone to do, to repent of sin and believe in the gospel. All right, now, more complicated issues related to adultery surface in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Matthew 5, 31 
and 32. Our Lord Jesus, he says, Matthew 5, 31, And it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 31, it was said, then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 and 3, in reference to a divorce and the divorce proceedings. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. That is, to bind the man and to protect the woman from this divorce, having stipulations and protections under the law because of the divorce. So that ought to be issued when the divorce occurs. And then in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause or the reason of unchastity or immorality, makes her commit adultery. Why would he say that? He's saying that if divorce occurs, if a man divorces his wife for any reason except this reason, because she has committed immorality, she has committed adultery. If she has not committed adultery and the man divorces his wife, he makes her, the husband makes her commit adultery. And why? Because the implication is, if she remarries because she was illegitimately divorced, she's still young and still at marital age, she remarries, then when she remarries, you are making her commit adultery. When your grounds for adultery were invalid. And, he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think here he means a divorced woman who has been illegitimately divorced. Why do I say so? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, where he reiterates these words, but with a little bit more explanation. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. And our primary concern will be in the middle of this passage. Matthew 19, 3 to 12. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? For any cause, any reason at all? Verse 4, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The Pharisees question, dealing with divorce, any cause at all, any reason at all in verse 3. They want to know from Christ. And we learn from elsewhere that they wanted to do this because they loved money and they wanted to divorce and remarry, divorce and remarry, presumably to marry a rich woman and get more money. They were lovers of money. So here in verse 4, Jesus' answer is, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? The point Christ makes is from the beginning, when God established marriage, he established it between male and female, and he called on them to come together in marriage and to become one flesh. And because they are one flesh, they should not violate that one flesh relationship in any way. Because they entered that one flesh relationship before God, before men, with vows to one another. Therefore, he says in verse 6, Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Just as God brought the woman to the man, Adam and Eve brought Eve to Adam and joined them together. When God joins the two together, no one should dare to separate them by divorce. No one should do that whatsoever. And even the couple, the husband or the wife, should never presume to separate them by divorce. Now, Jesus does not use the word covenant, but that's what he's talking about here. He is not using the word covenant, yet it is implied. The Bible actually does, in a couple of places, describe the marital union of husband and wife as a covenant, which means it is a solemn promise before God. Two examples. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, he describes throughout the first few chapters, first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, he's describing the need to be faithful in marriage and never to go to an adulteress. So he describes, for the sake of his reader, he describes the strange woman or the adulterous woman. And he says in chapter 2, verse 16, the purpose of him writing this, he says, to deliver you, Proverbs 2.16, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. There the term covenant appears. When a woman presumes to commit adultery with another man, then she leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Another example, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. In this case, 
that there were men who were divorcing their wives in order to marry foreign wives, that is, wives who worshipped idols. Malachi says, to marry the daughter of a foreign god. And notice what he says about this. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. Yet you say, Malachi 2.14, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Dealing treacherously in this context is divorcing on illegitimate grounds in order to marry the daughter of a foreign god. There was no basis, no valid basis to divorce their wives. And when they do so, they deal treacherously with their wives, treacherously against the covenant, treacherously before God, and they violate the one flesh relationship. Jesus is alluding to these concepts when he makes reference to what God has joined together, let no man separate. So then they wonder in verse 7, the Pharisees, back to Matthew 19, verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. It was not God's intention from the beginning for divorce to occur, but because of men's stubbornness of heart, because of their stubbornness, there needs to be parameters and laws to control their stubborn and wicked behavior. This is why divorce is permitted. But on what basis? He says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's a key verse in this passage on the basis for remarriage or divorce and remarriage. He says, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. If a man, in other words, has divorced his wife and married another woman, he commits adultery when that divorce happened when there was no immorality. If the wife did not commit immorality and a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, then that man is in a state of adultery. He, is dealing, he has dealt treacherously against his wife, his first wife. He's dealt treacherously against the covenant. He has transgressed the law of God. So when divorce and remarriage occurs, when the divorce was not on the basis of immorality, then that remarriage is also considered adultery in the Bible. Then... 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7, 10. Another circumstance 
related to this. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain. Let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. Verse 10, to the married, I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Do not divorce. When he says leave, in this context, he means divorce. To leave or to send away in the Bible, in this context, equates to divorce. He's saying the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, if that divorce has occurred, on an illegitimate basis, he says, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. The reciprocal is also the case. He says wife who leaves her husband or in this case also husband might leave wife. If the husband does that, he needs to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to his wife. These are the stipulations, these are the parameters on what is marriage and what is adultery. Our next major topic is fornication. Fornication or immorality. In the Bible, fornication has many forms or immorality has many forms. One of the major ones is having sex before marriage, having premarital sex, illicit sex outside of marriage, before marriage. This would be one way in which people commit fornication. Our example, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. John 4, 16 to 18. Jesus is dialoguing with the woman of Samaria. And he says the following, John 14, 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus brings up her marital or extramarital or illicit relationship with a man and she admits that she does not have a husband but she does have a man she is co-inhabiting with this man she is committing immorality or fornication with this man because she isn't married to him she had had five husbands and now she has a man who is not her husband. This was Jesus' way of bringing up her sin, making her realize that she needed to repent of sin and believe in the gospel. Another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. We'll read 15 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot 
is one body with her, for he says the two will become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Clearly, he says, if one joins himself with a harlot, a prostitute, then he has become one body with her, and God said the two will become one flesh. And he calls it in verse 18, immorality and a sin against his own body. And if one claims to be a Christian, he should even more be ashamed himself because he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body since you were bought with a high price, the price of the blood of Christ. Clearly, it is immorality or fornication in this instance. Now, a harlot, some harlots or prostitutes are prostitutes by force and others are willingly. It doesn't matter whether they were forced into it or whether they willingly went into it. Whenever a man joins himself to a harlot, he's not having relations with his wife and she is not having relations with her husband. Therefore, it is immorality or fornication. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn. What does the apostle teach us here? In verse 1, he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. However, he says in verse 2, but because of immoralities, because of fornications, immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That is, if you're not married and you are having sexual intercourse, outside of that marital union, then you are committing an immorality. And the way to resolve that sin of immorality is to have your own wife, your own husband. The same in verse 8. To the unmarried and to widows. There he makes a distinction. So he's talking about single people and widows. It's good for them if they remain even as I. Yes, he does recommend that they... Uh, stay chaste and celibate for the rest of their life. If it so happens in the case of the widow that her husband has passed away, that they could remain as Paul did. It would be a gift of God, according to verse 7. But being married is also a gift of, of God, according to verse 7. Because he says, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The Apostle Paul himself was single, but not everybody. And not the majority of people. The vast majority of people will indeed marry. So he says in verse 9, If they do not have self-control, whether as an unmarried person or as a widow, if, if they don't have self-control, let them marry. He doesn't say 
go ahead and have sex with whomever you want. He says the solution when you are single or a widow is to marry. That implies that if anyone has sex outside of the marital union, it is sin. Next, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. More examples now of what it means to practice fornication or immorality. Romans 1, 26 to 27. Here we will read of sodomy or homosexuality. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God gives people who are obstinate over to their sins. He gives them over to degrading passions. He gives women over to continue with women. They wanted other women. He's going to give them over to that. It says in verse 26, their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Naturally, through common sense, not only within Christian societies, but in all societies, everybody knows a woman should marry a man. But when they abandon that natural law, that natural instinct, that natural knowledge, that common knowledge that's in their conscience, when they abandon that, God gives them over, woman to be with uh, a woman. Or in 27, men with men. Because the men also, they deny and reject what God has clearly made manifest to them according to common sense and natural law, and they abandon the woman, and then they burn in their desires for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. He's describing male, as I call it, male sodomy and female sodomy. These are immoral, fornicative acts that are punishable by death. Because it says in verse 32, he says, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Romans 1, 26 to 27, and Romans 1, 32. Another instance of fornication or immorality is bestiality. Bestiality. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 23. Leviticus 18, 23. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Also, Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus 20, 15 and 16. Leviticus 20, 15 and 16. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. 
Another case of immorality is incest. Incest. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18, verse 6. Various examples are given. Leviticus 18, 6 to 18. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. As well, Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus 20, verses 10 to 12. Leviticus 20, 10 to 12. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That actually is adultery explained. But then the, the incest part, verse 11. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And then another case of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 13, addresses this sin in the church, in the local church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. He proceeds to say that he's already decided, though he is absent, to separate from this so-called brother. And he says that if you allow this sin to remain in the church, it's going to spread like a disease. It's going to spread like leaven does or yeast does in a lump of dough. And you won't be able to put a stop to it. It's going to spread and dominate your whole local church. So remove that unrepentant sinner, the un unrepentant um, practicer of incest, remove him from your church. Then another case of sexual sin in the Bible is rape. Is rape. 
Genesis chapter 34. There are two main chapters that describe this. Actually, there are, uh, an, there's another case of it in the book of Judges. But let me just mention the passages and cite relevant verses within the passages. The first one is Genesis chapter 34, the whole chapter, all verses 1 to 31. And in that chapter, we have a man named Shechem who wants uh, or who commits rape against the daughter of Jacob or Israel called Dinah. Dinah in chapter 34, verse 1. It says in chapter 34, verses 1 and 2. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Notice that phrase, by force. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he, that's Shechem, had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Verse 7, now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved that they were, and were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Verse 13, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and, and his father Hamor with deceit and spoke to them because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now, in the meantime, what happens? They deceitfully say, well, if we're going to intermarry with each other, our sons and daughters intermarry with each other, you all need to be circumcised because that's our belief. So they got those men of the city to circumcise themselves. And while they were in pain, then the two brothers of Dinah went out and massacred the men of the city. And why? Verse 27, Genesis 34, 27. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They know that this is a crime, that this is wrong, what, the men, or what Shechem did. However, we know from this passage and Genesis 49 that their penalty should not have been to all the men of the city, but just to Shechem, because Shechem was the one who raped, not all the men of the city. So this is why it ends up in verse 30. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, these were the two brothers of Dinah, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, Should he, Shechem, treat our sister as a harlot? Should he treat our sister as a harlot? They knew that it was wrong and sinful for their sister to be raped. Another example is 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here we read of one son of David named Amnon. Amnon is a son of David. Another son of David is Absalom, and he had a sister named Tamar from another woman. Absalom and Tamar are children of David from another woman. And so it says in chapter 13, verse 1, describing how Amnon raped Tamar. 
Now, it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now, this love is not true love. It's not marital love. It is lustful love, so it is wrong and sinful. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And what does he do in his shrewdness? He advises Amnon to pretend that he is sick and then to ask David, his father, why don't you send Tamar over to my house because I'm sick and I want her to make some good food, food that I like to eat when she prepares it. So that happens and she comes to the house of Amnon while Amnon pretends to be sick. Then he says, verse, uh, or it says in verse 9, 2 Samuel 13, 9, And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. By the way, this not only deals with rape, but it also deals with uh, premarital sex, because they're not married. It's the two of these issues together. Verse 14, however, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Clearly, he forced it, and this is rape. Look at verse 16. Uh, excuse me, um, verse 20. Verse 20. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And then it says that a couple of years later, Amnon... He had this initial reaction because he was covering up what he was intending to do a couple of years later, and that is that he was going to set up Amnon to be assassinated. He wanted to assassinate or murder Amnon, or kill Amnon, I should say, kill him for what he did against Tamar, Absalom's sister. And that's what he does, and that's what happens as it explains in the rest of the chapter. So here we know... The text tells us that there was a force and it was a violation and it was wrong. And Absalom knew that. Tamar knew that. Amnon even knew that because of his behavior, his secretive behavior. And even Jonadab knew that. David knew that. Everybody knew that. That what was done was wrong. Then, one more example of this. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says in verse 23. Deuteronomy 22, 23. 
If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Notice there, while engaged, she's still considered a wife. Similar to Matthew 1, Joseph and Mary. Mary was considered Joseph's wife, even though they were engaged at the time. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death, for just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. This is another case of rape. She didn't want it. She, she cried out, but there was nobody to help her. Now, from these passages, it's quite clear that the Bible gives several cases, several instances of sexual immorality or fornication outside of marriage, and it considers all of these wrong and sinful, worthy of death and punishment. These are detestable in the sight of God. Therefore, when the Bible does not mention other kinds of sexual deviations, they must also be sinful. And the deviations I have in mind are those of today when people say they are going to marry the earth. Marry the earth. Or when people say they're going to marry a robot or when they say they're going to marry themselves. Each of these are also sexual deviations, perverse, lewd acts, abominable in the sight of God, and worthy of death. This is the principle. We gain this principle that the Bible makes it clear what marriage should be, and whatever deviates from that must be sin. The Bible gives plenty of examples of that. Therefore, we can easily conclude that today we should also not marry trees or the earth, any other part of the earth, robots, or marry ourselves. That's not marriage. The biblical definition of marriage is a man with his wife, period. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.